0: If you'll join me for another word of prayer. Dear God, we come before you today, Father, uh, at this time, just asking you to speak, Father, to speak primarily through your word, Lord, to speak through your Holy Spirit at this time. Uh, I just want to thank you, Lord, as as was made apparent to me uh, during camp for the sermons that I preached there, Lord, and uh, for really every sermon that I've ever preached, Father. Uh, just think of that Bible verse that talks about how the gospel can be communicated, the foolishness of preaching, and how miraculous that is. And so I just want to thank you for this time, and I pray that you be with us. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Alrighty. righty, so uh, for everybody that has joined the, the monthly book club, right? part of the reason I want to do this today, uh, as I say every time, as you can see, I am, in fact, not Aaron. You know, I'm maybe a little bit more handsome now. So, <laughs> but... No. We're, uh, uh, I'm filling in for Aaron today. He's having some well-deserved uh, vacation time and family time this week. And so as I was filling in for him, I asked him, you know, what kind of sermon do you want me to do? Do you want me to help continue the series we're on? Do you want me to start a new series? What do you want me to do? And he said I could do whatever. And so a couple of things happened this week. I was thinking about uh, the book that we're reading, right? Uh, Tactics, talking about uh, how we go about sharing our faith with people um, and specifically how to do so in a way that is well evidenced and well reasoned. And on top of that, uh, in the past couple of days, um, one of the things I did this, this past week, uh, besides uh, hanging out with my, my friends that are in town, Clay and, and Gabby, um, is I have a friend back home uh, without going into names or anything, uh, who's essentially trying to bring the gospel uh, to this girl that he cared for and he asked me, well, you know, she said that she cares about the facts, right? And I'm not very good with the facts, he told me. And so I, I need your help uh, to be able to, to, to reach her, right? And so I went out of my way, I used my apologetics books that I have at home and these other resources that I know of online, and I put together this packet for them. Um, and I gave them this packet of apologetic stuff. She wrote down a bunch of questions. I wrote like, it's gonna sound like a lot, but uh, he told me the more you write the better. She had like, I want to say like 15, 20 questions I wrote like 30 pages or something uh, of responses, which to me was, I was like, you know, this might be a little much, but he said the more the better. And we handed it to her. And here's the thing, right? So uh, as I'm sure if you spend any time with me, uh, you'll be able to tell, right? There's different approaches that we can have to our faith, right? And, and preferably we have multiple of these come together, right? We have like a mind-based approach for our faith, but then we also have to have a heart-based approach, right? After all, uh, we're all clear, scripture says that even the demons believe, right? And so it's, it's not just having intellectual assent to, to a certain set of facts, it's about your heart lighting up too. And it's just, even though this is a reality that we all talk about all the time and that we know all the time, because I tend to have a much more facts-led uh, uh, pursuit of, of my faith, it always strikes me when I get a response like, what I got from this person, uh, which was related to me by my friend, after he went through the packet with her, she said, No, you know what? These arguments make sense for the existence of God. All of this makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I don't have any counter arguments. This all makes sense. But it's just not for me. And I don't know about you guys, but to me, that's always a striking answer. <laughs> right? And that actually makes the second person that I know who will say, Hey, all of this makes perfect sense. I have no counter argument, I have no counter solution to these problems, but I just don't want to believe. And so, as weird as that may seem to us, that does bring us to a particular person in scripture uh, who, as you can see by the title, uh, sadly, he received the uh, moniker Doubting Thomas, right? What a, what a great title to have, <laughs> to be remembered, right? Peter being remembered is the guy that is able to say, well, although Peter has his three denials, but we also remember him, as Gretchen said earlier, the guy who says, oh, Jesus, who are you? You're, you're, the, you're the son of the blessed one, right? You're, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. And Thomas is just doubting Thomas. And so here's the thing. Uh, before I read us this, uh, this set of verses for today, I want to go into our core truth. If I can get it. There we go. Which is that every aspect of our faith in God should be firmly planted in the evidence he has provided us. Unlike the example that I gave at the beginning, and like we're about to see with Thomas, we need to make sure that when we look at our faith, we have that heart component but we also need to have that mind component, right? After all, the Lord says to love him with all of our heart, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. And so we ought to be able to love him with all of our mind. And part of that is being able to trust in the evidence that he has provided us, not just for his existence, but for every aspect of the faith he calls us to have, and the same faith he expected Thomas to have, which we'll talk about in a second. And so you should think The word faith is a very ugly word for anyone who's not a Christian. Right, for atheists, for people that are, you know, maybe they're not full-blown atheists, but maybe they just, they don't like Christianity, or they don't like the idea of God. Faith is like an ugly word. They look at the word faith, and they think of, oh, well, you're just believing this thing because you want it to be so, and that's it. Right? They don't think there's any substance to it. In fact, uh, the well-renowned atheist Aaron Raw, I believe I a quote from him, uh, this is a guy who is an outspoken atheist, he'll debate Christians all the time. Uh, He'll he'll actually get very aggressive with his tactics uh, as far as insulting people sometimes. And, And he can get kind of aggressive. And this is what he has to say about faith. He says, quote, faith is a belief that is not based on evidence. There is nothing reasonable about faith. Faith is an unreasonable conviction which is assumed without reason and defended against all reason. And this is how people that are not Christians think about us, right? This is how they think about when we say the word faith, that's what they think we mean. They think that faith just amounts to wishful thinking in the face of an overwhelming tide of evidence against what we believe. But that's not true, is it? Or rather, what I want you to ask yourself today is, is that actually true for me in the way I practice my faith? When I think of the word faith, do I think of the word evidence following it up closely? Or do I actually fall into what an atheist would think faith is? When I talk about my faith, when I think about my faith in Christ, do I think that this is an evidence-based faith? This is the facts line up here. I, my heart is, is following the facts, or are we putting the cart before the horse? Or are we saying, well, I would like for this to be true, and so I believe it, but I've never slowed down enough to think about why I believe it. Because if that's where, if that's where you are today, if you identify with Thomas as we're about to read, uh, if, for those of you with your Bibles, we're going to be reading uh, out of John chapter 20, in a second, if you want to turn there. John 20, verse 24. If you find yourself in the place of Thomas, my question for you this morning would be, how can you begin firmly planting your faith in the evidence that God has provided you? And so we'll talk a little bit about what that means in reference to believing in God in general. But if you're already a Christian, you've been a Christian for a really long time, we'll talk about what that means in reference to how we treat Scripture, how we treat the Word of God. And so starting in John chapter 20, verse 24, It says this. And remember, uh, sorry, up until this point, Christ has appeared to the women at the tomb, first and foremost. He appeared to each of the other disciples, like one by one, some of them in a group, in a bunch of different ways. Everyone's super excited. We've all seen the risen Christ. This is awesome. And everyone has seen him but Thomas. And so they're hiding in the upper room, and then we have this scene, starting in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so we all know the story, right? Most of us, I would say. We look at Thomas and every time it's like, oh man, like Thomas should have believed it. But we never actually slow down and ask ourselves, why is that the case? Why should Thomas have believed this? And for your average person that you talk to, if you have a well-informed, let's say, atheist that you speak to, they'll look at the story of doubting Thomas and it'll make them angry. Right, because they'll say, man, how could Jesus be angry at the one critical thinker of this crowd? Is normally what they would say, right? How could he be angry at this guy just because he didn't want to believe uh, like this random report that he got from a few people? And that's normally how it gets treated, right? Again, we, they would apply that, that original definition I gave, the atheist definition of faith, and they would apply that to Thomas and say, well, of course Thomas didn't want to have faith. It would, it would be blind if he did. But here's the thing, right? When we look at the word faith as how it's used in the Bible, how it's used in the ancient Greek world... Faith does not mean blindly believing in something in spite of evidence. The Greek word that we translate as faith in our English Bibles uh, is pistis in Greek. Strong's Concordance defines the Greek word pistis as to be persuaded or to come to trust. And in fact, and this will be important later when we get closer to the end, according to the New Testament scholar Dr. Leon Morris, in his book A Dictionary of Paul and His Letters, in which he talks about Paul's letters, breaks down his usage of words and how he goes about constructing arguments and doing these different things, He says this, quote, faith, or pistis, is understood by Paul more or less as a response to revelation, and it means commitment or assurance, not blind belief. And so when the Bible tells us to have faith, it's not telling us to have blind belief. It's telling us to have an assurance. And if you ask Paul, according to his letters, it appears that he's saying an assurance and a deep-seated trust in Christ based upon revelation, Based upon the things that have been revealed to us. Based upon the things that they themselves had seen and had witnessed. After all, if you remember Paul's story, he was persecuting Christians, he was jailing them, he was killing them. And it wasn't until Christ himself appeared to him that Paul was like, oh wow, like, like this is, they're, they're correct. Right? And he becomes the Apostle Paul. And so, but we're not going to talk about Paul for the most part today, although he will come in at the end. So remember that, uh, how Paul defines faith for our closer. Today we're focusing on Thomas. And so when Jesus looks at Thomas and he tells him, you know, Thomas, you believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who believe and yet do not see. Is he upset at Thomas for not believing blindly? Well, that can't be, right? We just define faith as a deep-seated assurance, according to Paul, one that you normally get from Revelation. And so I want you to turn to John chapter 10, if you have your Bibles. John chapter 10, verse 7. We're going 10 chapters back. And it says this. So this is Jesus in the middle of a discourse, right? The the, the shepherd discourse. And he says this. And so th- there's a lot of things that we won't deeply go into here. There's a lot of really interesting theology we could dive into, uh, but that's not what we're focusing on today. So we're gonna read verses seven through eighteen. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came that they may have life and may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Discharge I have received from my Father. And we'll pause here. Uh, this is just the opener, right? Because we talked about, Paul says, oh, you have a deep-seated trust and assurance in response to, often, revelation. What is the revelation that Christ is giving them here? Because here's the thing, right? Upon seeing the disciples' confusion, seeing how they all get scattered, how they all go back to their old lives, seeing how they doubt, like Thomas, one would think that they're, they have a deep-seated confusion. They're like, oh man, we thought that Jesus was the Messiah and now he's dead. But if you've read the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels, you'll know that this, verses like these aren't alone, where Jesus is literally telling them what's going to happen. Right? He's like, hey, by the way, I am the good shepherd and you're my sheep, and I willingly lay down my life for the sheep. And he doesn't leave any room for misinterpretation. Right? He's like, oh, and by the way, my life is not taken from me. I lay it down because I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to do what? Take it back again. And so he's telling Thomas, Thomas, here's my revelation. Here's what is going to happen. He's telling this to all the 12, the people that are standing around, "I will die for the sheep, because I am choosing to die. I'm choosing to give up my life, and likewise, I will choose to take it back again, because I have the authority to do so. And so Thomas and the Apostle, the other apostles, they, they weren't, they weren't like acting in the dark here. They're running around the dark. It's not as though they, they should have been confused. In fact, this isn't the only time. Jesus tells them repeatedly, I'm going to die. He, he, he makes allusions sometimes in metaphors, sometimes with saying that his body is the temple, right, and he will, he will destroy it and bring it back in three days, rebuild it. He talks about this repeatedly. Now again, we said evidence, right? So this technically up until this point is just a claim. So if you put yourself in the perspective of Thomas, here you are standing around in John chapter 10, and you're being told by Jesus, by your uh, Messiah, your teacher who you've been following for three years, and he's telling you, hey, I have the power to lay my life down and take it back again to redeem my sheep. And so you, like Thomas, you in that moment you may go, okay, interesting. Well, I've seen him do miracles up until this point. I've seen him heal the sick. I've seen him do these different things. But power over death, I don't, I don't know if I've seen that yet. And here's what's interesting. Something that we lose out on sometimes is sometimes we forget that the chapters and the headings in our Bibles weren't there originally, right? We forget that the books of the New Testament were mostly written originally in scrolls, right? And, and they didn't have like, oh, verse one and two and three. There's just one continuous narrative. And because of that, when we reach the end of a chapter, we go, oh, that was great, on to the next story. But if you ignore the chapters that weren't there originally, the, the chapter endings and beginnings, I notice, John as an author does this on purpose. Right after this discourse with Jesus in John chapter 10, I'm going to have you turn to John chapter 11, just one chapter afterward. Almost as a continuation of the story, it says this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness is not linked to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So notice, as, as we go through here, Jesus' reasoning is like, the Son of God will be glorified. Keep in mind what he just said one chapter ago, right? Right before this in the narrative. right? He's talking about how he's the shepherd. He's God. He has power over life and death. And now he's saying, well, the Son of Man will be glorified through this. So moving on. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. We often comment on how bizarre this is, right? Oh, Jesus loved them. So he stayed where he was for two more days, (laughs) right? For most of us, if someone runs and tells you, hey, uh, your, your best friend is sick or your brother is sick or this person that you love is sick, we drop everything we're doing and we go. But Jesus seems to have another objective here. He cares about Lazarus, as we're going to see in a second. For those of us that know the story, you know how this ends. He cares deeply about Lazarus, but there's something else at play here. There's another reason why this is happening, and it's being done to glorify Christ. And so he stays there two more days instead of leaving immediately. Moving on, it says, Then after this he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples, as we all know, often missing the point, <laughs> say to him, Lord, but if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. <laughs> now Jesus had spoken of Lazarus' death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Notice what he's saying, right? He's not saying, oh, you know, well, I care about Lazarus, and I'm going to go heal him, which he is. He's not just saying, oh, well, you know, the focus here seems to be on, I am glad that this has happened, so that what? So that you may believe. Notice, Jesus isn't asking them to believe anything that he's not substantiating with evidence. Right, when he shows up and he says, I am the Messiah... He's not just speaking empty words. He's performing miracles. He's doing things, he has knowledge that none of them have access to about themselves. right? He's doing things that are outside the realm of possibility for any normal human being. And so here's the interesting bit, right? So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I am glad that I wasn't there so that you you may believe, but let us go to him. And look who's the next person that gets mentioned. So you know that he's there in this narrative. So Thomas called the twin, Said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. He's being a little bit sarcastic, right? They're worried that, that the Jewish people that were trying to kill Jesus beforehand in that same area are going to kill them again. But John, knowing what is going to happen much later, 10 chapters later that we read, he goes out of his way to mention Thomas. Like, it's, it's almost like a little side note. Oh, by the way, just so you know, like, Thomas is here. <laughs> or like, Thomas has heard all these words, Thomas is going to witness what's about to happen. So that we know that Thomas isn't being asked to believe blindly. He's not being told to believe things that he's not seeing before his very eyes. And yet, we're going to skip forward here to verse 38 to see what happens. So we're skipping over Jesus showing up and talking to different people. Then Jesus, in verse 38, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, to Lazarus' tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And so, what do we see here? We see Jesus giving revelation. We see Jesus saying, Hey, by the way, I have power to lay my life down for you, and I have the power to take it back. Essentially saying, Because I am God, because only God has power over life and death. And then a chapter later, He's literally shown not just defeating death, not just bringing someone back from the grave, but if you notice the details, Lazarus wasn't dead like in a ditch somewhere. Where was he? He was in a tomb that was a cave with a stone laid against it. Alright, So how much closer could we possibly get to Christ's own future resurrection? And yet, in spite of all of this, I'm going to read us the first set of verses again. In spite of all of this, back in John 20, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And so when we put it into context, what to a skeptic may seem like a reasonable response, oh, well, I mean, what evidence has Thomas seen? When we see it in context... How much more evidence could Thomas possibly need? He's walked with Jesus for three years. He knows who Jesus is. He's seen him walk on water. He's seen him heal the blind. He's seen him him heal the lame. He's seen him straight up say, I am going to die for you, and I will take my life back. And then shortly after, saw him take back the life of a guy that was laid in a tomb just like Jesus' tomb was going to be. And so suddenly we look at Thomas and it's kind of like, well, it's not that Thomas is being asked to believe without evidence and then being scolded for not doing so. He's being admonished for being stubborn in the face of sufficient evidence. And so this brings us to the first of our two truths for today, which is that we often play the ultimate skeptic in order to avoid God. So whether we would look at ourselves and say, oh, you know, well, I am an atheist and I'm firm in my convictions, or whether we would look at ourselves and say, well, I've never thought into it that deeply, but, you know, I have questions. A lot of the time, like Thomas, we decided to play the ultimate skeptic. That's what Thomas was doing, right? He had plenty of evidence. He had the claims of Christ for what was going to happen. He saw Jesus doing literally like a parallel to what was going to happen. He had his closest friends who were grieving just like him, who who were crying just like him in the days beforehand. Run to him and say he is alive. Not only that, if you know the story, the women, when they came back with their report that the tomb was empty, John and Peter raced to the tomb. Thomas could have gone to check out the tomb, right? <laughs> they all knew where it was. They all saw it. It was empty. He was being stubborn. And now, we don't know exactly why this is. right? We have Thomas saying, you know, unless I, I'm able to see him and I'm able to place my hand and, and the holes on his hands inside, I will by no means believe this. And so while we may not know what inspired Thomas to say this, as we apply this to ourselves, as we apply this to how we see ultimately the evidence in light of being an ultimate skeptic, it's very likely that Thomas was saying this as a response of the really hard emotional time he had just been through. Think about the things that he's pointing out, right? He's pointing out his own senses, right? Unless I can see him, unless I can place my hand in his side and on his hands, I will not believe. If you put yourself in the mind of Thomas, uh, although we are looking at him a bit more critically now when we talk about the evidence, also try to understand what they had just been through. He had seen Jesus taken away in the middle of the night in a garden, taken away by soldiers. After Peter and John went after him, Peter came back, surely sobbing, having denied Christ three times. Probably told them about how he was being put on a phony trial and he was being struck repeatedly. And then surely later he hears a report from John and Mary about how after that, after he was put on trial with the Romans, he was beaten senseless and tortured and put on a cross that a grisly death. And so when we try to put ourselves in the mind of Thomas, when we ask ourselves, well, why is he playing the skeptic? Why is he ignoring the evidence? A good candidate for that answer might just be the trauma that he's gone through. It might be that he's ignoring the evidence because he's looking at the things that have happened and he's like, sure, I may, have, I may not have been there in person, but I heard what happened. I heard about the holes put in his hands. I heard about the hole in his side from the spear they thrust into him. So until I see him, I will not believe. And so how does this translate to us? Right? We may not be walking around with the risen Christ among us this morning, but it may be that like Thomas we may want to play the ultimate skeptic because of previous trauma that we've had. We may want to play the skeptic with God because, oh, you know, well, I've dealt with religious people before. And religious people have hurt me. Religious people have spread rumors about me. Religious people have treated me really badly. And so I have a lot of trauma. So until I were to see some overwhelming evidence, I will not believe. And so we ignore everything that is in front of us. Maybe we look at our own life and we say, well, you don't have a lot of past trauma where maybe I'm the perpetrator of the injustices, right? I'm a horrible person. I look back at my life and there are things that I've done that I'm ashamed of that are horrible. And so because we get caught up in our trauma and we get caught up in our feelings, instead of looking at the evidence, instead of looking at the truth of Scripture, instead of looking at even something like just historical evidence for the Bible, we instead say, no, 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 no. I know the trauma that I've been through. I know the horrible things that I've done. There couldn't be a God out there that would love me. And like Thomas, we ignore the evidence in front of us. And so whether that's you this morning or whether you're dealing with people, maybe, maybe that's not you, right? Maybe you're like, man, I'm on fire for Christ, and, and I don't want to avoid God. I love the Lord. But you need to keep this in mind when you speak with other people. Uh, for those of us that have uh, read at the very least the first chapter of, of, of the book club, and you don't have to have read it. I'm just mentioning it since I was reading it uh, yesterday and this morning. was When we talk about talking with people, right, we don't want to be at war with them. We don't want to come in swinging and just like, "Oh, here's the evidence." And like we slam it down on the table like, "Ah. Oh. We want to come in in a diplomatic way. After all, we're trying to with the help of the Holy Spirit not win the battle, but to win their soul. And so when we're going to people, if you're if you're dealing with someone who's a doubting Thomas, and they're like, "Man, why won't they accept the evidence?" It's important that you keep in your mind, well, maybe they have past trauma they're dealing with. Maybe the problem isn't with the evidence I'm presenting. Maybe the problem is with something that's stopping them from looking at the evidence. And if we're going to be tactful followers of Christ, if we're going to actually carry out the Great Commission and bring the gospel everywhere that we go, we've got to be ready to, yes, love the Lord with all of our mind and knowing the evidence for our faith, but we also need to love him with our heart and love other people with our heart also. And so if they're like Thomas, that might take time. It might take time and effort on your part to talk to them, to get at that underlying trauma that that they've built up to stop them from getting to Christ. And then maybe they'll look at the evidence. Now, at the same time, we also got to prepare ourselves for the reality of what I mentioned at the beginning, which is that for some people, they might look at the evidence. Maybe it's not deep-seated trauma. Some people just look at the evidence and say, yeah, it makes sense to me, but it's not for me. And so it's important that we be patient with people because maybe someone's saying that and maybe they'll say that till the day they die. And well, we tried. But it might just be that that person is saying that not because they actually mean that, but because there's something underlying that is stopping them from getting to Christ. And so if we're going to be real followers of Christ and we're going to love the Lord and love other people the way that he loves us, right? if you can look back on your own life, I'm sure there have been times where you're being stubborn. And the Lord loves you anyway. And he deals with you in a wise way. And so it's important that we do that with people. That we love them. That we be there for them. That we be their emotional and spiritual support. That we pray for them. Both when they're not there, we're praying for them. And if they're going through something, that we ask that we pray for If we can pray for them. That we live out a life that would point to Christ. But here's the thing. If we're not talking about... Or rather, we just talked about evangelism. We talked about what it means deal with, with a doubting Thomas in our own life, maybe we're, we're playing the ultimate skeptic, or maybe we're trying to help people that are playing the ultimate skeptic when it comes to God. But maybe you look at that and you say, no, you know what, I have a pretty good rapport with my, uh, with my unbelieving friends, I do my best with the Lord's help, I'm not perfect, but I do my best to reach out to them, I do my best to have the evidence. Our second and final truth is that we often play the ultimate skeptic in order to avoid harsh biblical truths we don't like. So we applied it going outward, right? We, we, we applied it going toward evangelism. Now let's apply it inward. There are times that we play the ultimate skeptic because we don't like what would happen if we weren't playing the ultimate skeptic. Who knows? If maybe that's what was going through Thomas's mind. Remember where they were. They were in the upper room, doors locked. The disciples were scared. Their Messiah, their leader, got tortured and murdered. The Jewish leaders are out for blood when it comes to this Jesus movement. They might come for them next, who knows? And so they're scared. And so we don't know if this is what was going through Thomas' mind, but perhaps, if we can speculate for a second, maybe he didn't want to believe the evidence because if he did, this Jesus movement wasn't over. Maybe if he believed the evidence, he might have to be tortured one day too and maybe even die for his faith. And maybe that's not something he wanted to do. And now we don't know, right? we don't know if that was, what was motivating him, but I, I would ask you, does that motivate you this morning? Maybe not on, on the, oh, you know, I might die for this Jesus movement necessarily, but when you look at God's truth, when you read scripture, do you decide to play the ultimate skeptic for truths that you don't like? And before I get into, into uh, what some of these are, right? There's something that, that gets brought up, uh, and I've heard this all the time. I hear, I hear, I've heard it in sermons growing up. I've heard it in, like, uh, pastor-to-pastor jokes. I hear it all the time, right? When people are talking about sin, and it's like, oh, you know, everyone wants to talk about the big sins, like sexual immorality and murder, and yet, like, no one wants to talk about, like, lying or gluttony, right? And it's ironic that I say that, because you look at me, and it's like, yeah, that's a sin that I struggle with, right? But if we're going to be honest this morning, what's that sin that you Because the thing is, when we look at even that joke when that gets said, and everyone laughs... It's like we're all intrinsically agreeing with each other. Oh, yeah, because who would mention that? Because they, they would struggle with that. Why would we not mention that? If gluttony is something that I struggle with, for example, and I do, why would I ignore that from Scripture? That wouldn't make me a faithful pastor. It wouldn't make me a faithful Christian. It wouldn't make me a faithful follower of Christ to do that. And so, likewise, I would ask you if you would look at your own life, when you look at Scripture, do you look at it through the lens of what you would like to be true? Right? When you read those, those scary Bible verses about the reality of hell for people that don't believe in Christ, do you choose to cast that evidence aside and say, oh, no, but I'm sure they'll be fine despite of all the evidence that the Bible gives you as to what is going to happen? When you look at Bible verses that sound harsh, right? things that talk about, like we talked a couple weeks ago about anger, about how sinful anger is and hatred is towards somebody, do you just ignore that and say, yeah, but that's not that big of a problem, whatever, and you ignore the evidence in Scripture? Or even if we're going to talk, and we're going to be honest this morning, and talk about the more hot-button issues, do we look at verses that talk about things like sexual immorality, to lust after someone? A lot of the time we think, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm not out committing adultery, I'm not out cheating on my spouse. No, but are your eyes wandering, though? And if they are, are you treating that seriously, or are you ignoring that because it's convenient to ignore it? Like, it was convenient for Thomas to ignore the evidence. When you read harsh verses about things like practicing homosexuality, things get uncomfortable, right? I say that, and it's almost like we can feel the atmosphere get thicker. Why is that? We need to look at Scripture, and either we're going to take all of it, or we're going to take none of it. And if we're not going to play the ultimate skeptic with the existence of God, if we're not going to play the ultimate skeptic with the God of the Bible, why would we play the ultimate skeptic with the truths that the God of the Bible is revealing to us? Brothers and sisters, I I, I submit to you, we can't do this. And I do it, I think we all do it, right? We get uncomfortable, we don't wanna tell someone who who seems to be leading a pretty happy life, we don't wanna tell them, hey, you're you're, you're living a life full of sexual immorality that's leading to hell. We don't wanna say that. We don't wanna look at someone who is engaging, let's say, in homosexual behavior and say, hey, listen, the Lord loves you and I love you and this sin is just like my sin, it's sin is sin at the end of the day, but it is sin. We don't want to say that to people. And so I would ask us this morning, why don't we want to say that? Are we saying that because the biblical evidence isn't there? Or is there a pile of biblical evidence and we ignore it anyway? Because I don't want to say that. I don't want to have to tell someone that. I don't want to have to change myself with the sins that I struggle with. Because I would ask you this morning, as we're closing up here, instead of being like Thomas in this moment, to be like the Apostle Paul. I told you it would matter at the end. Right? We, talked about, we saw a quote at the beginning about what faith means in the context of Paul's writings. Let me read to you what the Apostle Paul said. and I'm going to my, my, try my hardest to choke up here. <laughs> um, in Paul's final letter, right, of 2 Timothy, he's been imprisoned for a while. As Aaron tells us all the time, he reminds us all the time, Paul has been beaten for the faith. He's been stoned for the faith. A horrible ma- all horrible kinds of things have happened to Paul for the faith. And he's getting close to the end here. He's finishing up the final chapter of his final letter to Timothy. And after that, the rest of history. After that, to become a martyr. And here's what he says to Timothy. And while he's just talking to Timothy, and while this is in a very pastoral context, I want us to apply that to ourselves as well. Because there are things that apply to pastors like me or like Aaron in a pastoral context, but they apply to you as well. And it's our responsibility individually. And here's what he says to Timothy. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort. And before I read this final part, which is the one that kind of chokes me up, that I'm preparing not to choke up for the benefit of reading it to you guys. (laughs) Notice what he's saying. Like, as my final words, Timothy, be ready to preach the gospel in season and out of season. And he doesn't say do so without evidence. He doesn't say do so just expecting people to believe you and to take your word for it. Convince. Rebuke. Exhort. These are difficult things that he's asking of Timothy, and it's difficult things that he's asking of me and of you. But if we're going to be faithful followers of Christ, we have to do them. And as I finish up here, notice the final thing in this, in this set of verses before he gives his, his greetings and, and, and closes out the letter. This is the final kind of meaty part of what, of what Paul is saying. He said all this, right? You need to do this. Uh, Paul has been doing it himself, right? We know from his other writings that he, he's telling people, man, follow, like, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like Paul, is, All these things that he's telling Timothy, Paul has done himself. He's been willing to sacrifice himself. And while this sounds scary, while it's very uncomfortable to talk about these things with people, notice to what end we're doing this. Following, Paul says this, Fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. And so my... My question to you this morning is, can you say that like Paul? Are you convincing? Are you rebuking? Are you exhorting? And not just other people, but yourself. Could you say, like Paul, if you were to meet your end tomorrow, could you say, I have run the good race, I have fought the good fight, I have kept the faith? That is my question to you this morning. And so if you will close your eyes and bow your heads, at this moment, with all heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're a Christian and you look at your life, and as I'm speaking these words out to you, you feel that while you're saved, you may have failed Christ leading up to this point. Maybe you've compromised truths of Scripture for the sake of being comfortable. Maybe you've played the ultimate, the ultimate skeptic to stay away from these harsh truths. But you want to repent from that. You want the Lord to help you have the courage to follow through with the gospel the way he wants you to. If that's you, if you would raise your hand, I would love to pray for you this morning. Or maybe you listen to all of this and you say, well, I'm not a Christian. It's dawned on me that I've been playing the ultimate skeptic all this time. Like Thomas, I've seen the evidence laid out before me in scripture, I've seen the evidence laid out before me historically and everywhere else. And up until this point, I've said, this is just not for me. But listening to this, you feel convicted and you want to be saved. You want to receive Christ into your heart. You want him to be Lord of your life. Like Paul, you want to say, I have run the good race. I have fought the good fight. If that's you this morning and you would like to be saved, I would love to pray for you. If you would raise your hand. Father, we come before you today, Lord. We just want to thank you for this time that you've given us. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you're just such a good God to us, Lord that even when I would fail you, that even when we would fail you, Lord, you would pick us back up again and dust us off and forgive us. I pray, Lord, that you forgive me, that you forgive everyone within the sound of my voice, Father, for all the times in which we've failed to bring the whole gospel, for all the times in which we've failed to preach the gospel in a loving way but in a convincing way. I pray that you forgive us, Lord, for all the times in which we've avoided the harsh truths of Scripture. And I would pray, Father, that you give us the courage, that like Paul, you would give us the courage, Lord, even when facing insults, even when facing pushback, Even if it one day came to the point of facing death, Lord, that we would do so willingly for the glory of Christ. I pray for every person that raised their hand, Lord, to that end. And I also pray for anybody, Lord, whether they raised their hand or whether they kept it (coughs) down, Lord, who needs you this morning. For anyone out there who has not been saved, who cannot call you their king, Lord. I pray that you would give them a heart of flesh this morning, Lord, that you would convict them through your Holy Spirit, Father, would speak to their heart through Scripture, Lord. I pray, Lord, that ultimately they may make the best decision that they could ever make, and that is to follow Christ. We love you, Lord, and we thank you, and it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Star Church's sermon. We truly hope that the sermon edified you today and brought you closer to the Lord. For more information about Star Church, visit our website at stargbchurch.com. Once again, that's stargbchurch.com. If you would like to visit our church, our address is 4925 State Road, 142 North, El Dorado, Illinois, 62930. We now pray that God will bless you as you enter the mission field and bring his word to the world. And as always, we will see you next time here at Star Church.